Right, as you're being seated, take your copy of God's Word. Turn to Luke chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 35. You know, to celebrate Christmas always is to celebrate hope. I want you to remember that. Every Christmas you celebrate, when you celebrate Christmas, you celebrate hope. Now, uh, our Aggies won, uh, and a win is a win, but uh, the pastor prayed for me this morning. We were, we were up top, and, I, and he said, how you feeling? And I said, well, I'm feeling all right, but you know, the offense was a little rusty because they haven't played in three weeks. I haven't preached in over two months. We'll see if I'm a little rusty. So he prayed for me, and I appreciate that. Uh, but think about hope. We think about, really, there are two kinds of hope. There is, there is a worldly hope and a biblical hope. And most of the time, if we're not careful, we'll slide into this idea of worldly hope. And worldly hope is based on two things, possibilities and probabilities. For example, a farmer plants seed into the ground, and he hopes that then the rains will come at the right time and at the right amount. There's a lot of hoping going on with those rains, the possibility and the probability of some good rains. So he hopes that things will go well. When you have a new administration, sometimes every four, sometimes every eight years, especially if you're closer to retirement like I am, then you hope it doesn't affect in a negative way your retirement plan, amen? Yeah, we're a little nervous about it, we're a little anxious about that. Lord, I trust you, but please... You know, help it to go up and not down. I'd like to retire one of these days. And we think about our Aggies. How many of you hoped and maybe prayed we would beat LSU? Anybody here? It's always interesting to me. The LSU fans who are Christians, uh, and there could be a lot of them. We don't know, okay? <laughs> They're Christians. They're praying that their team wins, and we're praying that our team wins I don't know. Anyway, we're praying and we're hoping. But it's a possibility. It's a probability. We know what can happen with LSU. It's not a gimme, right? And we're also hoping we'll continue to win, take care of our business. We might get in the playoffs. We have a chance. We have a shot. We have some hope. That's based on possibility and probability. It's not a certain thing. We don't have, you can't have absolute confidence in that. But then there is biblical hope. And with biblical hope, it's not based on possibility. It's not based on probability. Listen to me. Biblical hope is based on promises. The promises of God. The promises of what God says. And we're going to see a promise in this text. Actually, in verse 26, we'll name the promise that Simeon had. But before we do that, before I read the text, here's the point you've got to realize on how certain and absolute the promises of God are. Titus says that God cannot lie. So you put your hope in the promises of what God says, you're golden, you're good, okay? There's this bumper sticker that years ago I saw it. It says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Anybody remember that bumper sticker? I think we ought to amend that bumper sticker because here's the truth of what we're talking about in biblical hope today. God said it, that settles it whether you believe it or not. That's the truth of biblical hope. We know that we know that we know because God said it. Now look what God said, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now here it is. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit 
that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. There's Simeon's hope in this passage. The Holy Spirit told him, here's the promise of God through the Holy Spirit. You will not die until you see, hold the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. There it is again. My hope is based on your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at these things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for what this text teaches us about biblical hope. May we see it clearly. May we not just amen it this morning. May we live it out like Simeon did for your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Now, his hope was the promise of God that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So what can Simeon's hope teach us about biblical hope? Well, I see two things very clearly here before we kind of do some application. The first one is you have to recognize him. I mean, there's a lot of people milling around in the temple court that day, and he recognizes him. Why? Because he's uh, led by the Holy Spirit. We see that in the text. But you have to recognize who Jesus is, a correct view of who Jesus is. If you're going to have biblical hope, number one, recognize him for who he is. Number two, make the right decision about what to do with that truth. Recognize the truth of who he is. And number two, make the right decision about what to do with the truth about who Jesus is. So here's the first time. First thing, recognize Jesus for who he is. In his prayer, Simeon's prayer, three truths we see. And it's the first truth about who he is is based on this idea that God prepared salvation. Look what it says, verse 31. My eyes have seen your salvation. I've seen your salvation. Look at this, which you have prepared, which means this. God is the author of salvation. You put your faith in Christ. Listen, you didn't do, I will amend this. You do one thing. When it comes to salvation, you've got one job. That's to either put your faith and trust in Jesus once you see clearly who he is or back off and say, no, I don't want him. You've got one job to accept or reject him. Everything else is God's job. He prepared salvation here. God is the author, not you, or not your works. So why do you continue to try to, to base your living for Christ through religion and being religious and having religious activity? Here's what the scripture says in Ephesians. We want to see this, the definitive passage on this truth, that it's not your works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, look what it says. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God even meaning that faith is God's gift to you, not as a result of works, so no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, here's the, the word again, prepared beforehand that we would walk in those good works or in them. And so the idea is stop trying to 
see if you can be good enough to get into heaven. Even those who are Christians, it amazes me. I was at the deathbed of a friend of mine many, many years ago, and he said, as I'm holding his hand, I'm about to pray for him, and he said this. It blew me away. He said, man, I hope I've done enough. And you know what I told him? I mean, he's about to die, and I go, you haven't. <laughs> Seriously. And he kind of, his eyes got, hey, oh, my gosh, I'm in trouble. I said, you haven't. And I read him that verse. You can't do enough. Why? Heaven's a perfect place. Okay? Only perfect people get in. You're not perfect. So 2 Corinthians 5 needs to come into play. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I know I'm going to heaven not because I'm good, because I'm not good, because Jesus is perfect. Always has been, always will be. And so salvation is the work of God. Now look what it says, 31 through 32. God prepared Christ as a light. Anytime you see the word light, I want you to think truth. There's a lot of fake everything going around today. There's one thing you can bank on, absolutely true, and that is Jesus. He prepared Christ as a light, look at this, as revelation to the Gentiles, that's you and me, glory to his people Israel in the presence of all peoples. The gospel is for the whole world, Jew and Gentile. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It means that your wayward child is not beyond the reach of Jesus. It means your wayward spouse is not beyond the, the reach of Jesus. It, may, it means your wayward boss or your wayward friend is not beyond the reach of Jesus. He's come into the world to save everybody in the presence of all people. So he's the light to salvation for all. And what my prayer needs to be is that I'm in darkness and I see in darkness, Romans chapter 3 says, and if I'm going to see Jesus clearly for who he is, the Holy Spirit's got to remove those blinders and I need to see Jesus for who he is. He is absolute truth. He is Light. Look at the second thing in verse 34. And God prepared Christ to bring judgment to all who oppose him. Look what it says. This child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many and assigned to be opposed. That means that Christ divides men, that those who oppose him will fall into judgment. Those who put their faith and trust in him will rise into salvation. Here's what it means. Many people will reject Jesus. They will see clearly because the Holy Spirit will give them the light to see exactly who Jesus is. I'm explaining, Holy Spirit hopefully is using me this morning to explain to you the light, the truth of exactly who Jesus is and why he came to bring us hope. And then you've got to make a decision about that and some will say no. Look at that. Child appointed for the fall and rise of many, a sign to be opposed. It's the first hint in Luke's gospel that Christ's coming will not bring salvation and hope to everyone. Here's what I mean by that. Every now and then you'll watch the television and you'll see maybe a, a hurricane came through a town and pretty devastated and a lot of people lose their lives. And, and so a lot of help's coming from Washington and, and you've got the mayor there and you've got the governor of the state. And, and at some point someone says something like this. Well, I want you to send out some, before we close, send out some positive thoughts or prayer, if they're really bold, they'll say the word prayer, okay, because they're addressing the nation. Uh, because after all, we're all God's children. They'll say something like that. Have you ever heard that? I have. When I hear that, I look at the TV and I say very kindly, no, we're not. We're not all God's children. I can prove it to you. John chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to remember that verse. Here's what it says. Now, keep in mind before I say this, we are all image bearers of God. Everybody who has lived 
lives now, will live in the future, all bear the image of God, absolutely. But we're not all God's children. Because John 1.12 says this, all who believe, listen to me, and all who receive, he gives them right to become children of God. Don't miss that. It's not enough just to say, well, I believe in the man upstairs. Satan believes this entire Bible is true. The enemy believes everything you believe about God even better than you do. What he's not, he's not done the second part of John 1.12. He's never received him, which means bow down, take a knee, and call him Lord. All who believe and all who receive, he gives them right to become children of God. So Jesus has come. God prepared Christ to bring judgment. You can't be neutral about Jesus. You must take a stand. When the light of the gospel is revealed to you by the Holy Spirit, then a line is drawn in the sand and you have to choose one way or the other, which means this morning you're hearing the gospel and you can't walk out of here and go, well, I'm going to make my decision later. No, you walk out of here saying no, then you're saying no. A line is drawn in the sand. And then look what else it says in verse 35 as we see about the fact that you need to see the Jesus for who he clearly is. God prepared Christ to bring salvation through his death. Look what it says in 35. A sword, were, he's speaking to Mary, a sword will, will pierce even your own soul. The fact that Mary will be in extreme anguish watching her son die on a cross. Now, here's the first thing I'm telling you this morning. If you're going to have the hope of Christmas, if you're going to have hope in Christ, you have to see Jesus clearly for who he is. Absolutely. Jesus, if you go to Matthew 16, Jesus uh, uh, had, uh, Peter, James, and John had come down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. They're at Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus looks at Peter, and here's what he says. It's a great question. It's a question he will ask you through the Holy Spirit right now. He said, who do you say that I am? They've been talking about, you know, what do other people say? Who do other people say that I am? And, but he looked at Peter and he said, let me ask you. You see, it's a personal question. You can't, you can't say, well, let my grandmother, you know, answer for me. Let my parents answer for me. No, it's personal. Who do you say that I am? And Peter got it right. He said, you are Christ, the son of the living God. Now, you know a lot about Peter. He's pretty bold, pretty boisterous. boisterous. I could see Peter when he said that. And Jesus, now I'm, I'm taking a little license here little freedom with the text. It doesn't say this. This is just my vision. Jesus, when he says that, you're Christ the Son of the living God, Jesus goes, he starts the round of applause. Those are all clapping. I can just see Peter going, that's right, boys. I'm the man. Listen to this. <laughs> About the time he thinks I'm pretty cool because I got it right, Jesus said, hey, guess what, son? Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father who is heaven revealed this to you. Now, here's the deal. If you're going to see Jesus for who he truly is this morning, listen to me. This is important. You got to look at John 6:44 and 6:65. I'm going to quote 6:44 for you. In John 6:44, look what it said. Jesus said this. Jesus said this. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And 6:65 says no one can come unless granted by the Father. Here's the truth, here's the reality. If you're going to see Jesus for who he truly is, then you need the Holy Spirit to re remove those blinders, see him as light, see him as salvation, see him as a line in the sand where you must make a decision. That's the work of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you've got a loved one that they don't know Christ, you've got a neighbor that doesn't know Christ, you, you have a family member that doesn't know Christ, 
What you don't need to pray is, Lord, get them in church. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. They ought to have community. Lord, help them to see the, their, their sin and help them to quit doing this and quit doing this and quit doing this. Don't focus on that. Focus on one thing. Change your prayer today. God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, draw them to Jesus. Draw them to Jesus. That should be your prayer and my prayer. So Jesus is the light, the only way, and a line in the sand. So if he's a line in the sand and you have to make a decision, how do you respond? So that's the second thing. Recognize him for who he is. Second thing, decide rightly what you're going to do with him because you can decide wrongly. When I was doing some training in seminary about, about sharing the gospel, I was taught not to use Christianese. And what that means is for people, especially that are unchurched, they don't know the phrases we know, such as, have you asked the Lord to be your personal Lord? Have you accepted the Lord to be your personal Lord and Savior, right? I mean, to someone that's never been raised in church, they don't have a clue. For some people that's been raised in church, they still don't have a clue what that really means. So don't use, have you accepted the Lord? Well, I still use that a little bit, but here's why I use it this way. I, I, I go to the scripture, okay, that says the wages of sin is death. When I'm sharing the gospel, I'll point out, look, God's a loving God, but he's also a just God. And the sin you and I commit must be paid for. The wages of sin is death. But what he did is he sent Jesus, his only son, Came to this earth, lived for 33 years, absolutely perfect life, never sinned. They nailed him to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He literally didn't just take on sin. He became sin for the entire world. They put him in the tomb. Three days later, he came out of the tomb, conquering sin and death. Sin does not have to have power over you anymore because of the resurrection. So when I look at that, here's what I'm saying. Now, that's the truth. That's the light. That's the reality of Jesus. Now, I, I'm going to either accept his payment. He paid on the cross, down the cross and paid the payment for my sin and your sin. Amen? I'm either going to accept his payment or I'm going to go through life trying to pay for it on my own. Just see if I can be good enough, if I can read the Bible enough, if I can pray enough, if I can help enough little old ladies across the street. Whatever your idea of being good is. Have you tried being good lately? You tried being perfect? I have. Doesn't work. I think I'm doing pretty good. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. I'm not doing too well. So I'm either going to accept his payment or I'm going to work. It's called being religious, religious activity. I'm going to work hard all my life to try to pay for my own sin by being good. And we saw in Ephesians, you can't do that. Now, there's a, a verse you should be familiar with because the pastor covered it in Colossians 1. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What does that hope look like? I'm glad you asked. Romans 5 tells us this. Look what it says. Great passage on hope. Romans 5, 1 through 5 says this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace in which we stand. Now, you just shared about this is how you become a follower of Christ. In result, we exult in hope, the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation. We're going to have troubles, troubling times, hope and troubling times. Knowing that our tribulation brings perseverance, our perseverance, proven character, our proven character, hope. You put your faith in Jesus, here's where it ends up. It ends up in biblical hope. And hope does not disappoint 
because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So here's how I know I have that kind of hope because I look at the life of Simeon who had that kind of hope and I see some characteristics. Hope does not disappoint, Romans 5, because hope will produce something in you and me like it produced something in Simeon. Let's look at his example very quickly. Here's what it'll produce. Here's how you know this this kind of hope. Not this only, but this is part of it and it's gonna be growing in you. He was a righteous and devout person. You will seek your passion, your heartbeat will to be righteous before men. Let your light so shine before men. Isn't that what Jesus said? That they see your good works, but that they glorify your Father in heaven. You'll be right before men and you'll be devout. The word devout means careful and reverent towards God. You'll be right with God, man, and you'll be right with God. After all, isn't that the way Jesus lived? You remember when he was left in the temple for three days and Mary and Joseph go back to find him. One of the commentary part of that in the scripture says this. We don't know a whole lot about the life of Jesus as a child, but here's what we know. It says he grew in favor, remember this, with God and men. See, if that hope is in you, you're going to be right before men and you're going to be devout and right before God. Second thing is this. Verses 25 through 27, three times the Holy Spirit is mentioned. So you will live, Simeon lived in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, in in being directed by the Holy Spirit. It says in these three verses, the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit where he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then he came or was led in the Spirit into the temple. Now, don't miss this. Simeon was led by the Holy Spirit pre-Pentecost. He lived this out before the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. What's the big deal? When the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, listen, the Holy Spirit doesn't just come for a while and then leave and come for a while and then leave. That happened before Pentecost. At Pentecost, now the Holy Spirit comes to live in us 24-7, You are commanded to walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5. Romans 8 says you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in you and me now. Are you righteous and devout? Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. Simeon was pre-Pentecost. So I'm thinking, wow, if Simeon can do that by putting his hope in the Lord, why can't I do that? Because the Holy Spirit lives in me. Here's what you got to understand about the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit? I want you to remember this. The moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you have all the Holy Spirit you'll ever need. Right then, you have all the Holy Spirit you'll ever need. I believe that with all my heart. The question is, does the Holy Spirit have all of you? That's where you got to put your focus. Holy Spirit does his job real well. He comes in, Never to leave. You have all the Holy Spirit you'll ever need. The question is, does the Holy Spirit have all of you? Now, when you walk by the Spirit, let's look at the third thing very quickly. You see two things clearly, who God is and who you are. Look what he says here. He calls out in the NIV, sovereign Lord, at the beginning of verse 29. That means absolute ownership and uncontrolled power. He's See, if I walk in the Spirit, at all times I recognize he's God, I'm not. I recognize at all times who God is. 
He is sovereign Lord. And I'm going to give you the definitive passage on the sovereignty of God. You know what the Bible says in Psalm 115? Go look it up. Not during this sermon, but when you get home. God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. That's pretty powerful. That's how sovereign God is. God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. So if I'm walking in the spirit, I clearly see who God is and all of his majesty and glory and power. And then I see who, who I am. Look what he says. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bond servant. He uses the word bond servant. In other words, I'm just your property. I don't have any personal rights of my own. It, it, it helped me remember the verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't you know your body is a temple? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. What does it mean to glorify God? Reveal and reflect who he is. Don't make sure people see you. Glorify God in your body. Reveal and reflect who God is in the way that you live. That's what Simeon did. That's what we're to do if we have this kind of hope. Last thing, verse 29. Now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant. Look at this to depart in peace. He was at peace about his departure, meaning he's about to die. He's about to leave this earth. He did not fear death. When you know you're right with God and he calls your name, you're ready. You're ready to go see him. I hope you're ready no matter what age. You know, you never really know when God's gonna call you home. You never really know. I wanna close. I want you to see a picture. This is a picture of a, of a, of a boy that I baptized. He's about eight years old. His name's Mason Williams. I baptized him. If you come into my office and look to the left, you'll see a framed picture. His mother and father and sister gave this to me. About two days before we left, we went to their house to tell them goodbye in Brownwood, and they gave us a little goodie bag, and I love the fact that when I pulled that out, it reminded me, man, I, I remember baptizing Mason about eight when he was about eight years old. And I love that picture because, boy, isn't that cute? He's just looking up at me, and he's, lit, he's hanging on every word, and put his faith in Jesus, we baptized him. We're going to look at Mason now. Mason is 17 years old. Let's look at this. Good-looking young man. First thing I noticed, full head of hair. Got the, he's, he's representing Coggin. Got that Coggin sweatshirt on. That was, that's the name of our church. But I want to introduce you to Mason in this way. Mason uh, developed stage four liver cancer. Um, he's alive today uh, in Brownwood. But Mason uh, came uh, or developed this cancer that it, basically they'd never seen this cancer. Uh, and he was, there were a lot of uh, consultations with a lot of doctors, 27 to be exact, all over the United States. Once they realized he had a very adult cancer, they'd never seen it in an adolescent. And so 27 doctors got together and you know, called each other and talked and probably did Zoom. I'm not sure how they did it. And they all decided, we, we got to figure out a protocol because this has never been found in an adolescent. So they decided our only hope, because this cancer is not curable, is to give him some time, hopefully some good time. But our only hope is to give him the adult-sized big boy chemo, and they did. And at one point, the, the, the tumor kind of stayed the same, but they kept giving it to him, and the last time they checked, and it began to make him sicker and sicker and just miserable, and he was really hurting. He finally started having a lot of pain, and, and the chemo was just wrecking his body. And the doctors, even after that first test, said, look, the chemo's doing no good. Uh, it's popping up all over his body. It's moved all over. So you got a decision to make. We, we continue the chemo, making him sick as a dog, 
uh, and we give him a few more months or we discontinue the chemo and we give him a few weeks probably. So two weeks ago, she called me. She said, Tim, we've decided no more chemo. Mason's a big, big man. He's 17. He can help make us that decision. He said, I don't want any more. I'm done. So Tim, the doctor said, weeks, not months. Now listen, when you get that kind of news, and, and I'm going to ask you, please, write his name down, Mason Williams, Melissa, Randy, and Cameron is his sister. When you get the kind of news that says, barring a miracle from God, which I believe absolutely God could think the thought and heal him right now, and I pray that he will. But barring a miracle, this will be Mason's last Christmas, if he makes it until Christmas. They know that. Well, how do they respond? How do you, how do you respond in those troubling times? Well, let me share with you what Melissa wrote on the Team Mason Facebook page just a couple of weeks ago when they found out they're going to discontinue the chemo. I know without a shadow of doubt that God is still capable of our miracle. I believe it with everything in me, but it's looking more and more like his healing will not be on this side of heaven. I do not understand why some get the miracle, why some get to continue to plan their children's future, future while others are left with a different reality. But I tell you, None of this changes the sovereignty of God. None of this changes his goodness. None of this changes who God is and his great love for us. God will use these times to fulfill his purpose. God has pressed on my heart to really look for my security in heaven, not on the earth, to fully trust in him and not in the security we can find in the things of this world. We have been called to simply trust, trust that God is using our deepest pain to fulfill a purpose that is greater than our understanding. I wish more than anything that this wasn't Mason's story. I wish I could change it or take it his place. But even in the depth of our pain, we have to trust that even if God doesn't answer our prayers in the way he, we wanted, his answer is always right. God's love is eternal. His wisdom and power are supreme over everything. He will guide us through the deepest pain. And one day, we will stand in his presence. Now listen, written before I even really realized what I was going to preach. That is the hope and promise we stand on. What's biblical hope? It's standing on the promises of God. And here's the promise. When we take our last breath on this earth, our next breath will be face to face with Jesus. As a believer and receiver of Christ, that is the truth that gives us the greatest comfort. When you celebrate Christmas, you celebrate hope. Let me tell you the promise they believe, because I've talked to them about it. Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus. He's been in the tomb four days. He's about to pull him out of the tomb. We know the story. But his sisters, Mary and Martha, are beside themselves with grief. And in John eleven twenty six, this is their hope is not wish upon a stop, falling star, cross our fingers, Mason's going to be in heaven one day. Their hope is in John eleven twenty six, 26, because that's what God says. God the Son said this, John eleven twenty six. 26, when he looked at Mary and Martha, here's what he said. Anyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Amen. And what she knows, she said it. When Mason takes his last, last breath here, never miss a heartbeat, never miss a breath. The very next breath, he sees Jesus. And when we die, we'll join him there. Christmas is about hope. Make sure it's the right kind of hope that you believe in. Let's pray.
Father, we love you. We thank you for the hope we have in Jesus. Uh, we hope we have at Christmas because of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the gospel, the good news, the awesome news. And Father, in a, in a few weeks maybe, I'll, the young man that I baptized, maybe preaching his funeral. I'm not worried about Mason. Mason's going to be great. I grieve for his family. I pray we won't grieve like the world that has no hope. Help us all to grieve with hope. Thank you that the gospel is good news and hope in troubled times. Head bowed and your eyes closed. If you have a decision to make, we're not going to be long. But staff's going to be down front, ministers down front. You may want to come and just spend some time in prayer. You've been thinking about joining this church for a while. You may want to come make the decision to join this church. You may want to say, I don't know that I know him. I know about him. I believed him, but I've never received him. Today would be the day you move quickly as the Holy Spirit leads you this morning.